You're listening to the podcast series for Women Vision SC 2020, a production of South Carolina Public Radio. I'm Linda O'Brien. We'll hear interviews from some remarkable women from across the state. They were nominated by our listeners. Join us now with one of the 11 Women of Vision SC. This week, we talk with Deborah Blaylock. As one of the state's leading mental health administrators, she was the first woman appointed as Deputy Director of the Community Mental Health Services at the South Carolina Department of Mental Health. Welcome, Deborah Blaylock. As Deputy Director of the South Carolina Department of Mental Health, you oversee a state network of 17 community health centers, a number of agency programs. This has to be difficult work, seeing people often in emergency, in crisis. How have you been able to sustain your passion for this work? For me, it's really gratifying because not only do we see people when they're at their most difficult times in their lives, but we see them recover. That doesn't mean cure, but we see them live to their full potential despite their mental illness. And that is so gratifying to see folks come from the depths to achieve whatever they want to achieve. And what are your goals now as deputy director where you're overseeing a, a larger group statewide? So for me now, I, I was in Charleston and I was the mental health center director in Charleston. So my goal is to take programs that are all over the state that are really outstanding kind of blue ribbon programs and make sure that they're just not in one community or another, but that we blanket the entire state with those programs. So regardless of whether a person lives in Oconee County or Allendale County, they have access to the same quality programming. And where do you find those programs? There's some in Charleston, there's some in Florence, they're, they're really all over the state. And the mental health centers, now we have 16 instead of 17, we merge two. Each one has its own unique culture and own unique programming. And so there are little jewels all over the state and it's just making sure that we spread that everywhere. When you were in Charleston, you developed a mobile unit that has actually been cited as being a model. Tell us about that. So I didn't develop it, but I inherited it. Yeah. And we expanded it across the, the community. And it's a really, I think it's a very important life-saving program. It's a 24-7 crisis response program. So regardless of where a person is and they're in psychiatric crisis, regardless of who calls us, the team can go out and serve the individual who's in crisis and make sure they get to the level of care that they need, whether that's a hospital bed or maybe it's just wraparound services in the home. And now the state has developed that across every county. We have, we call it community crisis response and intervention, and it's a 24-7 program across every single county in South Carolina. And we just finished rolling that out a month ago. How do you deal with these very serious community issues, though? We have homelessness, we have problems of gun violence, all of these issues, um, some of which are attributed to mental health. Yes. So for me, it's really about uh, bringing the community together and creating community collaborations. No one agency or no one entity can solve a problem alone. And so it takes all of us together to bring our resources to the table to figure out solutions. And I think that's how, in Charleston, that's how we were really successful developing some model programs by, by saying, hey, we need everybody in this fight. 
You were there after the tragic loss of life at Mother Emanuel. Tell us about that and how you were able to bring the community together. So that was probably the most profound experience of my career thus far, um, responding to that. The, the mental health center at that time had a clinician embedded in the Charleston Police Department. So the night of the massacre, we had a clinician boots on the ground half an hour after the shooting. And she was located in the hotel where the families were being brought to learn the fate of their loved ones. And from that moment forward, the mental health center was very involved. So we, we attended every wake, we attended every funeral, we attended just about every prayer service that was held. We stationed clinicians in front of the church to help folks who were coming by to pay their respects because we saw people mourning right on the sidewalk and not having anywhere to go. So we have a, an RV that we set up outside of the, the church that had water, air conditioning, some snacks, a bathroom, and clinicians. And so in the event that a person wanted to come in to have a little respite from the heat, June in South, you know, Charleston is really hot and humid, they could come in and talk to a clinician. We participated with the church in planning the funerals. That was a really difficult thing for the church to plan funerals for nine of its members to include its pastor. So it's been a it's been a long involved road. And I understand it also involved the entire congregation that Absolutely. changed afterwards and this was a long-term effort that you were involved in. Absolutely. Imagine your church, my church. I have a, a pew that I sit in. I might have a parking place that I park in routinely. And Mother Emanuel, prior to the shooting, had about 500 members and on any given Sunday, there might be around 100, 125 folks in attendance at a service. The Sunday after the shooting, the church, which held 1,200, was filled to capacity, standing room only. And so while the members certainly felt supported and uh, loved and, and hugged by the community, they were, they were a little bit displaced. So I could no longer sit where I nor normally sit. I have all these folks in my church that I don't know. And so I think it took some uh, some time for folks to get used to their, what they call their new normal, um, because their congregation dramatically changed. And as a mental health specialist, how do you help people get to a new normal in, on an individual basis? It, providing a lot of therapy, a lot of support. Um, we held support groups. We became a part of the women's ministry, the men's ministry, the children's Bible school, just always having mental health folks present. So it wasn't unusual. We would be at, at service every Sunday. Um, we did that through the November following the massacre. I had two clinicians present every Sunday. So folks began to see us as part of their world and part of their congregation. Um, I was a little worried about how that would be for me as a white female. Um, I never really worried about my race before. I was never conscious about it, I guess I'll say that, which I'm kind of embarrassed to admit. But I was, I've been conscious about gender, but not my race. But that morning, the Sunday after the shooting, when I was driving to the church, I wondered if my race would get in the way of my providing the comfort that I was going to deliver. And I will say the members of the congregation never let that get in the way. I was immediately welcomed in and made a part of. It, it, it was so meaningful to me. I was there last Friday. As a matter of fact, um, it, at a conference that the church was putting on um, from the Empowerment Center, which is a place that we created with MUSC and the church to provide support to the members of the, of the congregation. It's just very meaningful. And how are things going, would you say? Uh, it's certainly not over. The struggle's not over. It's better. Time definitely helps folks get better, but there's still a lot of wounds. 
We were a part of the SOFA Superstore fire response after that massive fire where we lost non-firefighters. And so we know from our efforts with that, uh, that it takes a long time. It, it takes years. You know, people want to say, well, okay, it's been a year, it's been two years, it's been three years, it's been four years, everybody should be better. That's not exactly how it works. And that was some seven or eight years prior right. in June. Right. It must have been really right. tough. It was tough. We were preparing for the memorial service for the fire when the massacre occurred. And so we learned a lot of lessons from the fire that we could translate to the church. But there were some unique things about the church because obviously it's a different environment. Let's talk about you for a moment. Tell us where you grew up and was there one memory in your formative years that you considered a turning point? I was born in Massachusetts and my parents moved to Charleston when I was two years old. So I consider myself a Charlestonian. Charlestonians probably don't, but I do. And um, I had a great childhood. I had the beaver cleaver kind of childhood. I have two younger sisters. Interestingly, my father's Lebanese and his parents immigrated from Lebanon and from Palestine. And my mother's father immigrated from Italy. So we had a, we had a very unique mixed kind of culture. The Arabic culture is a culture that is not particularly feministic. I'll say. Um, but my father was a very interesting man. He instilled in my sisters and me that we could be whatever we wanted to be, despite the fact that he may feel differently about women's response outside of his three daughters. Um, so he always supported us that way, and so did my mother. My mother was a nurse, and my father was a carpet layer. So that early support helped you as you found your career? I think so. It, it, we always believed, my sisters and I always believed, like the universe was ours to go grab and, and excel and succeed. And we knew we'd always have that love and support from home. Was there a teacher who had an impact on you? I'm Catholic, and so I went to Catholic school. And I had a nun, Sister Madonna, I'll always remember her, who was very supportive and also believed the same thing, that girls could be whatever they wanted to be, and they should go after it and not be stymied. Um, I also had a, a teacher who was a lay teacher at the Catholic school who told me that I would never get math that I would never understand algebra. So that was, that was pivotal also for me because I was going to prove her wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the negative became a positive. Absolutely. Did you end up liking math after no, all? No, I hate math. <laughs> I hate math. But I understood it enough to use it to be able to achieve what I wanted to achieve. What would you say your biggest workplace challenge is now? I would say stigma is probably the biggest challenge. So. People do not treat mental illness as they treat other illnesses. If you have a family member that goes to the hospital for surgery or cancer or heart attack, somebody's gonna bring you a pound cake or a casserole. If you have a family member that goes to the hospital for a psychiatric illness, you're gonna get nothing but silence. So I think stigma is my biggest challenge. How do you change that? I think it's one person at a time, and I think it's I think it's in schools. I think if we teach our children to not make fun of people who have a mental illness and make sure they understand that mental illness is an illness of the organ of the brain, then, then we will finally start to make some headway into decreasing stigma. But the media sometimes makes fun of mental illness, uh, you know, TV shows, portray mental illness in a very demonic kind of way sometimes rather than a way to create empathy. But in the schools with cutbacks, we don't have as many counselors as perhaps we once did. How do you overcome those challenges? So the good news is in this state, 
the General Assembly, the Governor, the Department of Education, Department of Mental Health have committed to putting a counselor in every school by 2022. And we see through our school mental health program that we are making a difference, that we are reaching children, we're reaching their families, and they're understanding that mental health is an issue that has to be addressed and confronted. And when you, you are able to confront it at that age, um, what are the changes? What does it do for that person's lifetime? I think a couple of things. It, it prevents possibly a more serious mental illness from developing. It teaches children that they have to pay attention to what they feel and what they're experiencing and that they have worth and they have value. We have so many children in our schools who are experiencing trauma whether it's hearing gunshots outside at night when they're trying to sleep, watching a family member be beaten by another family member, or just watching traumatic events on TV. Um, what, whatever it may be, we have lots of kids experiencing trauma. They have to have a place that's safe for them to come talk about their experiences. And having a mental health professional in their school that they have easy access to, and there's no embarrassment, no stigma around that, because they're just going down the hall to talk to Miss Debbie. That is going to make a, a dramatic lasting impact on our state. You have mentioned there's a stigma attached with mental health and hard for people to really understand this illness. Was there a time in your life when that reality clicked for you? A lot of people come into our field because they have a family member with a mental illness or they've experienced something themselves. I, I was fortunate that wasn't the case, but for me, my husband and I went to marriage counseling and I found marriage counseling extremely helpful and it did not save our marriage, but it really helped me get through a painful divorce. And I thought to myself, wow, I, I, I love how helpful this was, and I think I could do this. So after our divorce, that's when I went to grad school and came into the field. One of the issues that many women face is work-life balance. How do you overcome those kinds of issues? I don't know that I've always been successful. I have five children. I've given birth to three and two are wedding presents. And so it was very challenging to figure out where mom needed to be. Sometimes when I was at work, my head was at home or my heart was at home. And sometimes when I was at home, my head or my heart was at work. Having a supportive family network was very important. When I was going to grad school, I was single with a two-year-old and a four-year-old. And my mother and father were extremely supportive to me in helping me take care of my kids. I, I, I don't know how people do it without a family network. Um, that's how it worked for me. Right now, I have an extremely supportive husband who lives in Charleston while I'm in Columbia. Maybe he likes that, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but having that support's been huge. Are your kids what ages My now? kids are 33 to 23. Okay, so they're not little ones around no, the house no, at this not point, little ones. but you went through a lot of yeah, that. Yeah, it was difficult. There was a time when I had a one-year-old and I was working our mobile crisis unit, going out at three o'clock in the morning, and then I'd have to be home to get him ready to take him wherever I needed to take him that day and make sure that he was being breastfed and all those other things. It was challenging. Well, given all of that, what would your advice be for a young woman today? It sounds trite, but I would say really follow your dreams, follow your passion. Don't ever forget to take care of yourself. That's critically important. I think as women, we don't always do that very well. We're really busy taking care of everybody else's needs and we put ourselves last. And then we find ourselves maybe in a place of resentment, which isn't a great place to work from. So it's take care of yourself and be mindful of what your needs are and expressing your needs. Your needs are just as valuable as anybody else's needs in your family. 
this series is called Women Vision. What is your lifelong vision, would you say? I guess that's a, a couple of things. My most proud achievement is raising five really wonderful young men and women. I have one daughter and four sons and making sure that they achieve their dreams and they believe that they have value and worth and can achieve anything they want to achieve. It means so much to me when my children, especially my daughter, I guess I'll say who's 32, says, I'm so proud of who you are, mom. You know, I, you're my hero. Who could want to hear more than that, that your children think that you're their hero? How would you define leadership? I think it has to be being a servant leader. I, I fervently believe in that. I want to be able to support the folks who are out on the front lines doing the tough work, and I think that's my job as a leader in our system, to be able to, to clear the way. I work in a large bureaucracy, and sometimes the bureaucracy is not all that helpful. And so whatever I can do to move the bureaucracy and shake it up a little bit to support the person on the front line, I think that's my job. And it's my job to create a vision with all the staff to make sure we're, we're pulling in the same direction. So that bringing everyone together, seeing the vision, working together. I think so, and hearing from the front, like what do you need? Where do you think we should go? How can I support you? I think that's what leadership's about. What makes you a good leader? I think it's my ability to bring people together for a common cause and create a collaboration. I, I think that's one of my greatest strengths. I also think I'm a good communicator and that I just am very straightforward. I don't dilly-dally about things. I just kind of get to the point. And I think that has helped people trust me because they know that I'm just gonna get straight to the point. Are these qualities that you gained or you feel you've just sort of had? I Where do they come from, those qualities? I think the communication part, obviously, that gets refined over time and over years. And I think the ability to coalesce people, I think I, I can be engaging. And I think that kind of that's just who I am, an engaging person. But I think you develop that and refine that over time, too, because you have to accept when somebody's not, I guess I'll say, picking up what I'm putting down and recognize that and then kind of maybe change my tact so I can make a person feel more comfortable with me. Where do you see South Carolina? going? From the mental health perspective, it's a beautiful place. Uh, we are leaders in this country in a lot of ways. And you know, sometimes we hear negative things about South Carolina, where it ranks and this or that. But I have folks from all over the country contacting me to talk about how do you do mobile crisis 24-7 across your whole state? How do you create crisis stabilization units? How does mental health partner with law enforcement? How did you get to be in over almost 800 schools thus far in your state? How does that happen. So I think in South Carolina, our mental health field is tr tremendously respected across the country and we're unique in the state because our Department of Mental Health is still a provider of service, not a broker of service. In most states, the Department of Mental Health contracts with private entities to provide care. Not in the state, I'm a state employee. And all those who work for the Department of Mental Health are state employees. So a lot of states are very jealous of the fact that our state has continued to support the Department of Mental Health in that way. So you're giving the services right from the department yes, rather than... Yes, which is very unique in this country. There's only one other state that does that, and that's South Dakota. And finally, in 2020, we marked the 100th anniversary of women gaining the right to vote. Why is it important for women to vote, either today or historically? 
because we have a unique perspective. My perspective is certainly different from my husband's perspective. And so I, I think our voice has to be heard and our voice is best heard by our vote. And historically, why has it been important for women to gain this vote over the last hundred years? Because definitely if we didn't have it, we wouldn't be, I wouldn't be in this chair speaking with you. I wouldn't be the deputy director. Um, interestingly, I'm the first female deputy director for community mental health services with, with the Department of Mental Health. I was the first female center director for the Charleston Dorchester Mental Health Center. So without our ability to put forth our voice for all these years, we wouldn't be where we are now. We wouldn't have the rights that we have now. You mentioned being the first. Was that a difficult position in both of those capacities? A little bit. Um, you know, Department of Mental Health is a place that has the majority of female staff, but not the majority of leaders historically have been female staff. So there, there's been a little bit of um, challenge in perhaps being the boss, if you will, over male counterparts. That's been a little bit challenging. Um, but, but fortunately, in the Department of Health, it's a very progressive kind of viewpoint of all the staff who work there. They have empathy for, obviously, mental health issues. And so I think I've been accepted. But this is an interesting state in that regard. So being a female interfacing with male politicians can be a little bit interesting. Just wondering where you go for your strength. You're giving counseling to people. You're helping them in crisis. Where do you go? My faith. Um, definitely my faith. I'm a lifelong Catholic, and I live across the street from a convent for retired nuns. And I get to go over there, and it's such a privilege to be with them for Mass. That's a big piece for me, having, again, a supportive husband. And then having a really great network of women. In Charleston, we had this group called Will, Women in Local Leadership, that we would get together and have lunch and support each other. And it would be a fire chief and a police chief, a hospital director, myself, others, the director of our alcohol and drug agency. And so I was really worried when I left Charleston and came to Columbia that I would lose that sense of community. And I was invited into a, a group like that in Columbia. And the, that group of women has been so important to me over the last year and a half since I've been removed from my, my tribe in Charleston. And they welcome me into their tribe. And that's a great place to just go talk about things and vent about things and share things and get guidance and support. Thank you very much, Deborah Blaylock. Thank you. You've been listening to Women Vision SC, a podcast production of South Carolina Public Radio. You can find video stories and other resources on Know It All and SCETV.org. The producer of Women Vision SC for South Carolina Public Radio and the podcast series is A.T. Shire. William Richardson is the producer-director of the television series. Zhao Yu is associate producer and Becca Turner is production assistant. Tyora Moody is web manager. Bobby Kennedy is director of special projects. For SCETV and South Carolina Public Radio, I'm Linda O'Brien. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>